We want to welcome you to the services this evening, and we appreciate your attendance. And if you consider yourself a visitor uh, from another congregation supporting this work in this meeting, we're thankful for you and your presence with us. And if you're visiting from this community, we hope and pray that you feel comfortable and welcomed. And as we prepare to study a portion of the Word of God this evening, I hope and pray that you will give serious consideration to the things that we will present, that first and foremost, that you will find them in harmony and in accordance with the will of God. Now, any time that we preach or we teach a message pertaining to God and His relationship and His Word for mankind, it's a very serious thing. Because as we consider the words of Christ and we look at His life and His example for us and His commandments and what God expects of mankind, you and I have the opportunity to have a salvation. And that salvation gives us a great promise of heaven, but... It also gives us something that's more important for us in this life, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. Each of us stands in danger of the judgment of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and none of us this evening, besides from the little children that are among us, would, would say that they are sinless and that they're totally innocent in the eyes of their Creator. And that's a great problem for man because one day God is going to send Christ to return and He is going to be the judge of all mankind. And we are going to stand before that judgment and there are one of two things that will happen. Our Father in heaven will look at us and He will see us in our sins and we will be separated from Him for all of eternity or He will see the blood that was sacrificed for those sins on Calvary and the forgiveness that Christ offers to all the world. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning of verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. But His long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? You see, he asks a rhetorical question there, or makes a statement that you and I ought to listen to this evening. That knowing that the judgment of God is going to come upon this world and upon mankind, we ought to be motivated to be servants of God. We ought to be motivated to study out the things in His Word and to be honest in our heart and honest in our approach to studying the Word of God so that we can present ourselves safe within the blood of Jesus Christ when that day comes. You know, it's not God's will to destroy anyone. We talked earlier this week about that God doesn't take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. That's not God's motivation. That's not what He desires. But we see clearly through this passage that we just read that His desires that all mankind would come to repentance, that they would turn from their sin, change their life, and focus on His Word. We've talked this week about a lot of different topics that present challenges and difficulties in this life. And we've talked about depression. We've talked about addiction. And that the Bible addresses how we ought to overcome those things through a strong relationship with God, through Jesus Christ. But tonight, I want to talk about the greatest problem that we all have. And that's the problem of sin. See, we focus on all these earthly issues that we deal with, and sometimes we neglect the greatest problem that we have, and that's sin. 
Our sin separates us from God. And if we want to know the solutions to the problem of sin, we ought to listen to the words of Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the Son of God. He was the Word of God made flesh who dwelt among us. And the early apostles beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And when He spoke to them, they listened. Tonight, I want to plead with you to listen to the words of Jesus pertaining to salvation. Because if we're honest, we could go to a lot of different buildings, hear a lot of different sermons, share a lot of different ideas. And when someone asks the question, what is it that I need to do so that I can be saved and forgiven of my sins, we might get a lot of different answers. But I believe Jesus answered this question one way. And I think His answer was consistent throughout His ministry and His teaching. And as we study the rest of the New Testament, as the apostles went forth preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that good news, I believe there was a consistent message that was preached everywhere that they went. And you and I ought to preach that same message today. And you might have been taught something else in your life pertaining to your salvation and the steps that are necessary for one to go from being a sinner separated from God to one who is sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, I want you to think about those things and consider them up against what we're going to look at as we study the Word of God together this evening. And if you'll do that with an honest heart, and I will do that with an honest heart, I believe we can find unity, and I believe we can come to a conclusion that we can be in agreement on this very issue. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Jesus has a conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus. And we're going to read these first seven verses and discuss them this evening. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And as we read these words of Jesus, I think we could be in agreement that Jesus teaches that there has to be something that happens in the life of an individual to allow them to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus refers to this as a new birth. He says, you must be born again. Now, consider who Nicodemus was. He's coming to Jesus at night. Why is he coming to Jesus by night? Well, who was he? He was a Pharisee. And if he had been going to Jesus during the daytime seeking advice, that might have, what? There might have been some consequences for who he was among the Pharisees. So he's coming to Jesus by night, and the first thing he recognizes is that Jesus has some authority in regards to what he's teaching about God. He recognizes him as a skillful teacher who has some type of authority, and he says, Rabbi, we know 
that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the things that you're doing except God be with him. So the first thing you and I need to recognize about Jesus tonight is that he has the authority to speak on things pertaining to man and man's relationship with God. In John chapter 14, Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no man would come to the Father but by him. Do you recognize Jesus' authority tonight? Because I want you to understand, we could do a lot of religious things, and if those things aren't done under the authority of Jesus Christ, they're not helping us in our relationship with God. Jesus is the one authority that you and I ought to follow. And Nicodemus sought him out. Now Jesus, three times in these seven verses, makes a statement about this rebirth. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he says, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he makes the third statement, a proclamation that you must be born again. If Jesus speaks about something three times, very specifically within a seven verses, it's probably pretty important, isn't it? He probably wanted to make sure that Nicodemus got the message. And I believe he wants us to understand this message tonight. What does it mean to be born again? Sometimes we hear that phrase, I'm a born-again Christian, or I'm a born-again evangelical, especially around politics time and election time, because that's a percentage of our population that politicians are concerned about appeasing. We, we have to get the born-again evangelical vote. But what does it mean to be born again? I believe Jesus tells us what it means, but what we have done is we have accepted another definition for something that Jesus clearly defined. Understand when we accept someone else's definition away from the definition of God's Word, we're trusting in the doctrines and commandments of men. So what was it that Jesus spoke of as he spoke here about this rebirth? First of all, we need to understand it's not a physical birth. You know, there are some that will contend that part of this rebirth process, even today, speaks to the original birth of mankind. And that as the amniotic fluid burst forth from a mother, that was the water that Jesus was speaking of there. But you need to understand something. Jesus makes a clear distinction between this rebirth and the physical birth of a child. In verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? What did Jesus say to reply to that? In verse 6, he said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, what we see here is it's a single birth in this rebirth of man, but contains two elements, the water and the Spirit. Now, we might look at that question of Nicodemus who said, Can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? And say, That's a ridiculous statement, isn't it? It is. Nicodemus knew full well that couldn't happen. Then Jesus clarified that, that we're not talking about a physical birth. We're talking about something that is spiritual in nature. Though there is an element that is a physical element, and that being the water. Jesus said in verse 5, in between those verses we just read, that most assuredly I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's not speaking of two births here. He's speaking of one birth with two elements. So as we examine this passage, we see water plus the Spirit will ultimately bring about 
man's rebirth. And man's rebirth allows him to have entrance into what? The kingdom of God. We need to be in the kingdom of God. The kingdom is his church. And through this process of rebirth, there is a spiritual rebirth that takes place that gives you sonship or daughtership with God and ultimately places you within his kingdom. This rebirth ultimately brings about the forgiveness of sin and man's salvation. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, Jesus said, As surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you by no means, will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Again in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. So understand all of the things that are connected to this rebirth. We understand we have to be converted. That means in my mind something has to change. And Jesus spoke to his disciples in that time and he said, unless you're converted and you become like these little children, you have no hope of heaven. And then again, we see that we're conveyed or we're changed or we're added to the kingdom by what? By the blood of Jesus Christ that forgives us of sin. So this rebirth... Gives us what? It gives us the forgiveness of sins. It gives us a relationship with God. And it gives us entrance into His kingdom. Whatever this rebirth is, it's powerful. Whatever this rebirth is, is what Jesus would have us to take part of this evening. You know, we're born by the will of God. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, when we think about our birth into the kingdom, or our addition into his kingdom through this rebirth of being born of the water and the Spirit, it's by the will of God that this happens. I can't work hard enough to make it happen on my own apart from it being God's will for it to take place. Now, each of us have individual responsibility and God has given us free will. And understand, His will is that all would be saved. Therefore, He has made a very clear path for you and I to be reconciled to God, to have our sins forgiven, to have entrance into His kingdom, and to have the forgiveness of those sins. James 1 verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see, this rebirth cannot take place except it be the will of God and that it be in accordance with truth. And that being his truth. And this passage teaches us that he has brought us forth into his kingdom through this rebirth by his truth. And tonight, anything that we read and anything that we study about man's salvation needs to correlate with truth, which can only be found within the Word of God. Something else about that passage in John chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. What's it mean for someone to have the right to become something? It means He has provided access to them 
but they have not obtained it at this present time. You know, Jesus here, John is speaking and writing, recording, talking about Jesus and who he was, reflecting back on his life and ministry, and he says, those that received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. What's it mean to have the right to become something? Let me illustrate it this way. There was a time when I asked Elizabeth to marry me. She said yes. You know what I didn't do that night after we got engaged? I did not go back to Ty and Lisa's house and say, she said yes, she's mine, we're leaving. That was just the beginning of the process of becoming husband and wife. Because a few weeks later, guess what we did? We went down to the courthouse... And we filed and we received something called a marriage license. You know what I didn't do with that marriage license? I did not take that license to Ty and Lisa and say, we're married, she's mine, we're leaving. You know why? Because all that license did was it gave us the right to be married. Because what had to happen? There had to be some type of ceremony performed. There had to be some type of agreement made between Elizabeth and I with some witness that could take that license and sign it who had the authority by the state of Texas to sign that and submit that so that she and I could be legally recognized in the state of Texas as married and we exchanged vows in a church building and we made vows before God in an audience of witnesses. And at that point, we became married. So think about what this passage says. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. You see, as we begin to understand and maybe believe in Jesus Christ and receive him, we start to think about him and understand who he is. That doesn't make us children of God. But it's the first essential step that's necessary. For no other step that you could perform or fulfill as a commandment of God means anything if you don't believe who Jesus is. You can repent and feel sorry for your sins. You can pray and plead with God. You can be immersed in water hundreds of times without a belief in who Jesus is. All of that is in vain. Because it's the belief in Jesus and the acceptance of His person and who He is that gives us the right to become children of God. That tells us there's some knowledge that has to be present. And tonight, for you to have your sins forgiven, for you to be saved, for you to enter into this kingdom of God, you have to have some level of knowledge and understanding pertaining to you and your relationship with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. You see, Paul writes here to the church at Corinth, and he says, You've been begotten, you've been brought close, you've been accepted by what? In Jesus Christ through something known as the gospel. Well, if the gospel is what Paul says they were conveyed into the kingdom by, and that ultimately had the information necessary for them to have the forgiveness of sin, we probably need to have an idea of what the gospel of Christ is. And there needs to be some understanding and knowledge pertaining to that. 
For without that knowledge, how could we have been called forth in Christ Jesus through that gospel? Just like those in Corinth had been. 1 Peter 1 and verse 23 says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. You see, it's through the word of God that we can gain the knowledge and understanding that's necessary for us to see what is it that this gospel is defined as and how can I take part in that gospel and ensure that I have entrance into this kingdom, being born again of the water and the Spirit. Yet there are some religions that may teach that you don't have to have any knowledge. And in fact, other people may be able to perform religious rites for you without your knowledge, you not even knowing, and you will be saved. Some believe that they need to perform some ceremony upon a child who has no knowledge and no understanding to ultimately forgive the sins of that child and make sure that they have an entrance into this kingdom through that process. But what we see in the New Testament are individuals who had knowledge, who had understanding about this gospel, and then based upon that knowledge and understanding, made a decision to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Because tonight, my words cannot save you. No preacher, how powerful his message may be, can save you. No words of man, though eloquently conveyed and written and recorded for us, can save you. But the gospel can. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul states, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You see, this gospel contains the power of God to save. What is the gospel? The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You need to have knowledge of that. And sometimes we start talking and thinking about salvation and say, how much do I have to know? What is it that I have to know before I can take part in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? How much do I really have to understand completely? What you need to understand is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins that he was buried in the tomb, and three days later he was resurrected. And because of that miraculous event, you, through that blood that was shed, can be forgiven. Because without that forgiveness, you stand guilty before God. And when the weight of your sin weighs upon your heart to the point that you feel like you need to do something in order to come in contact with that blood that was shed on that cross and you understand His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and what that means to you, and your desperate need for a Savior, you need to act upon that. That's what you need to know. That's what you need to understand. Because how many of us understand more today than we did the day we obeyed the gospel? I hope every one of us that's obeyed the gospel... Because there ought to be some type of process of growth that continues to take place within the life of a Christian who is in the kingdom of God, who has been born again of the water and of the Spirit. What you need to know is that gospel. And if you know that tonight, and you know your sins are separating you from your Creator, 
It would be a foolish decision not to do something about that this evening. You see, God's Spirit works through the Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Does the Holy Spirit work in man's salvation? Does the Holy Spirit perform a function in leading one to the point of being born again into the kingdom of God? Now, I know we can study passages that talk about men and women receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit once they have obeyed this gospel. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, as Peter preached that gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he gets to verse 38, and there's a statement there that says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So what happens when we're baptized into Christ. He said, every one of you need to repent and be baptized. He said, for the remission of your sins. You see, sins are remitted through baptism, but also we're given something. He said, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We understand the fact that once we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we receive His Holy Spirit. His Spirit seals us it identifies us. It lives within us. And through our study of His Word, that Spirit grows. But we have an identifying Spirit, separate from our own Spirit, that God looks at and sees that He has a relationship with us in that Spirit. But does that Spirit do anything prior for us before we're born again into the kingdom? And tonight I want to say that I believe that it does. And I believe that any time the Word of God is taught and that Word of God is planted in the heart of an individual, the Holy Spirit is working through the knowledge of that Word. Let me illustrate it this way. I remember, I want to say the first gospel sermon I ever heard, but I'm sure I heard one prior to this. But as far back as I can remember, this is the first gospel sermon I ever heard. And it was probably the year 1997 at a church house in Coleman, Oklahoma. And Brother D. Till was preaching a meeting. 96, 97, somewhere in there. I need Brother D. to check his record so he can tell me exactly when that was. But I remember he preached a message about the salvation that we could have through Jesus. And at that point in my life, I had never done anything. I didn't know anything. I hadn't studied anything. And all I did that evening was I got home and my dad said, Hey, me and your sister are going to a meeting in Coleman, Oklahoma. Do you want to go? And I have no idea why, but I said, Sure. He probably promised to feed me dinner on the way. And I got in the pickup with him, and we drove to Coleman, Oklahoma, and Brother D. Till was there. I didn't know Brother D. Till from anybody else. But he preached a message about the cross of Christ. He had a wooden cross. He had a crown of thorns. He had a hammer. and Y'all have heard the sermon, haven't you? <laughs> hammer and some nails. 
I want to tell you, I heard that message that night. I heard the story of the cross, and he got to the end of that, and he gave an invitation. And in that invitation, he talked about baptism. And baptism, putting us in contact with the blood of Christ that could cleanse and forgive our sins and give us heaven and a great hope. And I remember sitting there thinking, man, that sounds great. But you know what I didn't do that night? I didn't come forward. I stood there and I sang that invitation song. I put my hand on that pew in front of me and said, that was a good lesson. A few months later, one of the elders from La Prada came to me and said, hey, would you mind me studying with you? I said, no, that'd be fine. Brother Gerald Hanley came out to our house consistently on a weekly basis and he did a study with us, myself mainly, called the five-part Bible study. How many of you have ever heard of that? Don't raise your hands. I know you have. It's a great tool. And I sat through study one, and I said, man, I learned a lot. I sat through study two, three, four. I got to study five, and he made a presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he talked to me about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he talked to me about hearing the word of God, believing in Jesus, repenting of my sins, confessing before men my faith in Christ, and being buried with my Lord in baptism. And I said, man, that sounds great. And he said, well, don't you think there's something you might need to do? And I said, no, not me. I'm good. He left. A few months later, Brother Tim Hutchison came. Chase, would you mind me studying with you? No, I'm game, whatever. And he came out consistently. We did the same studies. I said, yeah, I know this, but I learned more, and I was eating it up. And I said, man, this is good stuff. And he got down to the fifth study, and guess what he did? He preached the gospel of Christ, told me about all the same things. And I said, sounds good. He said, don't you think there might be something you need to do? I said, no, sir. Brent Fisher, Bruce Woody, deacons at that congregation, they did the same thing. And I sat in a study with four other young people that were my age, and Bruce Woody got to the end of that study. He made that same presentation. All three of them are in tears, crying their hearts out, and said, we need to be baptized. He said, Chase, what about you? I said, no, not me. I'm good. My point in saying all that is this. I believe the Spirit, through the Word of God, was working on my heart in every single one of those studies. Because I was learning and growing, but my heart wasn't pricked yet. I knew the ins and outs of what I needed to do, but I wasn't moved and I didn't feel guilty and convicted of my sins and how desperately I needed the forgiveness of God. But I believe the Holy Spirit was working through that Word because where did we get that Word? We know that Jesus made a promise to send the Comforter when He left. And he told his apostles that he would send that comfort to bring all things into their remembrance. And as those things were brought to their remembrance, what did they do? They wrote those things down. And you and I today have those words in a book form in the Bible that when we read and study from, it's the Spirit of God working through that word on our hearts. Because I want to tell you, it was two years later January 17th, 1999. 
If I've got my dates correct in my head, that was a Sunday. And at that point in my life, I had met a young lady at that La Prada Drive Church of Christ. You know what? I went to church Sunday morning. I went to church Sunday night. I went to church Wednesday night. Because I had met this young lady that I was kind of fond of. And I didn't know what she saw in me, but I guess there was something. And we began to spend a lot of time together. And we would study together, and she would teach me. And Sunday evenings after church, two church services, and spending a day with fellowship and other Christians, she would say, well, do you want to go back to study? And I said, does that mean you and me are going to be at your house together? Yeah, then yeah, I'll go study. And she would sit down with me, and we would go through the Scriptures, and she taught me. And I learned, and I began to grow. But I want to tell you, January 17, 1999, she made a statement to me. I'd been through all these studies with all these leaders in the church. But you know what she said? She said, I'm worried about your soul. And I said, why are you worried about my soul? She's like, you've never been baptized into Christ. And I said, you really think I have to do that? And these were her words. She said, I know you have to do that. You know what I didn't do right then? I didn't go to the church house and get baptized. But two days later, I was sitting in a college classroom, and I hadn't slept in two days. And I was bothered in my conscience. And I pulled my Bible out between classes, and I started turning to passages that had been read to me over and over and over. And I said, I know what I need to do. I called my dad, and I said, Dad, I need to get baptized. And he said, well, it's Tuesday. This is the 19th of January, 1999. He says, tomorrow night's Wednesday. We'll have church services. You can come forward and be baptized. I said, Dad, if this is as important as everybody keeps telling me this is, and that I really think it is, I don't need to wait. And he said, I'll call the elders. He called the elders, and we met at the church house there in Mesquite, Texas. I want to tell you, I was scared to death driving from Plano to Mesquite because I was afraid something was going to happen, and I knew I hadn't done what God wanted me to do to be saved. Now, I might have had his mercy at that point. I don't know. But what I do know is that evening, Bruce Woody and I got into a baptistry. He took a confession of my faith in Jesus Christ. He immersed me in water. He brought me up, and I had been born again. You see, through that process, that seed was planted years before. The first time I remember hearing the gospel preached, it took a little time for that seed to grow in my heart to ultimately bring forth that rebirth. Now, should it have taken me that long? Maybe not, but God was patient, and I'm thankful that He gave me enough time to make that decision. Where are you at tonight in your relationship with God? You may know the ins and outs of what you need to do, and you just haven't quite made that decision this evening. Let me plead with you, as everyone pled with me, don't put that decision off. If you know what you need to do, you need to take care of that while you have time. 
and while you have opportunity because God is working on your heart through His Word. And that seed has been planted and your faith needs to grow. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is born of God and everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. You see, that faith requires belief. You have to believe in something. And what you have to believe in is Jesus Christ. But that faith doesn't stop at just belief. It requires obedience. Romans chapter 1 and verse 5 says, Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You see, there is some development that must take place before a birth occurs. No, this is true even in the physical birth of a child. Our first child, Elizabeth, found out she was expecting. She went to the doctor and found out that the baby was healthy. And even before that, she had an idea that she was expecting. And she said, well, I ought to be about four weeks along. And she said, at four weeks, this baby is about the size of a poppy seed. And I said, okay. We went to the doctor at eight weeks, and the doctor said, well, that baby's about the size of a raspberry. Well, four weeks later, at week 12, it became the size of a lime. At 16 weeks, it was the size of an avocado. At 10 weeks, it was the size of a cantaloupe. At 24 weeks, it was an ear of corn for some reason. Then at 28 weeks, it was the size of a head of cabbage. At 32 weeks, it was the size of a pineapple. At 36 weeks, it was about the size of a watermelon. And I remember her tracking the progress of the growth of our child within her, and she said, this child is moving, I can feel it, and it was life. And I believe it was life from the time that conception occurred. But it hadn't been born yet. But then there came a time where it was time for that baby to be delivered, and guess what we had? We didn't have any produce, we had a baby. But think about the growth that had to take place because what happens when that baby is born at 20 weeks? It can be dangerous, can it? When those babies are born early, there are a lot of risks and a lot of things that could go wrong in that young baby's life and their existence. But when that baby grows to the full potential that it needs to, it's ready to be born. You see, when you've heard the gospel of Christ, you know your sin is separating you from God, and you're ready to make that commitment to God that you will serve Him faithfully, and that you're willing to submit to Him in baptism, guess what? You're ready to be born. Because if you get baptized without the proper knowledge of the gospel of Christ, and you're not really convicted of your sins, and there's no repentance that takes place, all you're doing is getting wet. You need to be converted in your heart to Jesus Christ. And through that trusting, obedient faith, God will remove your sins. You see, man's faith has a single source, and it's the Word of God. Romans 10 and verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here we get to the pivotal moment and the pivotal question of the study this evening. Is baptism required? 
Because before I heard that gospel sermon, I had been through a process that I thought I was forgiven of sins by. I didn't understand. I couldn't have told you what the gospel was. But I had had an experience with a group of individuals that I really felt was authentic, sincere, and saved me. And I remember making statements and saying prayers and some of those kind of things, and I felt good about those things, but as I look back on that, I understand that I wasn't saved. Because as I had said that prayer, I went home to my dad, and I said, Dad, I was saved, I said this, and he said, you need to really look at your Bible and understand some things. And I said, what else do I need to know? Well, it became apparent through the intervention of other people who began to study the Word of God with me. And I began to see the truth. And what I came to the realization of is those people might not have had evil motives and they weren't bad people because what I believed to be true was very sincere, but it was sincerely wrong. Because as I began to understand the truth of the Word of God, I saw something that, you know what? I need to do something else. And the truth is, as I said that prayer, I got back home to that church and that preacher told me, he said, we need to schedule your baptism. And that was the point in which I started asking questions of my dad, which opened the door for all these other studies to take place. And it was a very interesting process. And I remember asking him, I said, why do I need to be baptized? He said, it's a good thing to do. And I asked him, I said, am I saved? And he said, you're saved, but you still need to be baptized. And at that time, my understanding of baptism, it was a big ceremony and it was in front of a lot of people and I didn't want to do that. And I said, no, if I'm saved, I'm okay. I don't. And he really kept pressing me on that. I didn't understand why. You see, most religious groups will admit that baptism's a good thing to do. But I want you to look at this statement in Galatians chapter 3. I believe this tells us that baptism is not just a good thing to do. It's not just something that God asks us to do to join a church or an organization or a group of people, but I believe it's something far more significant. Galatians 3 and verse 26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Do we believe that tonight? Do you believe that you're a son or daughter of God because of your faith in Jesus Christ? You should, because that's what it says. But notice the next verse. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You see, what he says is that this baptism where you put on Christ precedes the sonship of God. He makes the statement that you're all sons of God by faith in Christ. He says, for as many of you as were baptized... Into Christ, he said, This baptism happened, you put on Christ, therefore you became a son who was saved by faith. And that fits perfectly with what faith is it's a belief in something that causes me to act and obey the will of God. You know, the order matters, it matters to God, and it ought to matter to you and I tonight. One of the most prominent teachings in the world today pertaining to man's salvation is that you hear a message pertaining to your relationship with God and your desperate need for Jesus. 
You believe in Jesus and what He had did, performed on the cross for your sins and that He's been resurrected by the power of God and you will be saved. What often has failed to be mentioned here is that there are some requirements such as prayer or repentance or a confession or some of those things that we like to just kind of push off to the side and say all you got to do is hear and believe and you'll be saved. You know, Jesus preached and told the people that if they didn't believe in Him, that they would be damned. So I want to tell you tonight, you have to believe in Jesus or you won't be saved, but that is not the only thing that the Word of God instructs us pertaining to our salvation. And as good students of the Word of God wanting to know the entirety of the story and what it is He desires for us, we ought to dig and study and meditate upon the entirety of the Word of God so that we can get a complete picture and make a totally informed decision about our soul and our salvation. Because if we believe we hear, we believe, and we're saved, and then a day or a week or a month go by, and then at some other point later in time we're baptized, can this baptism be for salvation? If I believed I was saved by believing only? I believe that's a valid question. That in our hearts, we need to honestly reflect upon. Because if you heard the message of Jesus Christ and you believed it and you truly thought you were saved and then at some point later you were baptized, what was that baptism for? It could not have been for salvation because you were already saved in your mind and in your heart. I want to tell you, it takes a very honest individual to admit that. But tonight, God can only work in an honest and sincere heart. Jesus said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. See, the order matters. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the gospel message of salvation. And we, in obedient faith, submit to His authority in baptism. Baptism saves. But understand, it's not the water that saves. Water is simply the element that God has chosen to utilize as a mode in which man can submit to the will of God in, that proclaims to God a submissive and obedient heart in which God can work and perform an operation on. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 says, There is also an antitop which now saves us. Some people will say baptism doesn't save, and then what does this verse say? I'm not questioning someone's sincerity. All I'm asking is, what does this verse say then? Because if you read this verse, it says, there is also an antitop which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, it was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that was the gospel message and the same power that was utilized by our Heavenly Father to bring Jesus back to life is the same power that works within our salvation when we obey in baptism. And through that baptism, we are saved. 
But if you were baptized and you were immersed in water, you could have done everything and checked everything off the list. But if in your heart you did not have faith in what was taking place and you had no understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your sins were not forgiven. And you were not born again into the kingdom of God. Sometimes people say, well, I did it because other people were doing it. I was baptized because other people were being baptized, or I was baptized because I felt bad about something I did, and I thought that would solve it. And Is that the reason the Word of God instructs us to be baptized? He instructs us to be baptized to what? To show God a good conscience that's willing to submit to His will and accept the salvation that could be found through the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, this may take a little bit of time. And sometimes we get frustrated with people. I know I have. I've studied with individuals and we present the gospel and it just blows my mind. How can you not see this? How can you not understand this? Why won't you do this? And we have to have trust and faith in the Word of God because it's not our words that convert or convict or save anyone anyway. It's the Word of God. And our job is to preach and to teach and to plant and water and let God's Word bring forth the increase. See, James chapter 1, verse 18 says, Of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. In Colossians chapter 2, we see this operation of God taking place upon a heart that has faith and full trust and confidence in God. As he makes the statement, Buried with him in baptism, in which also you are raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You see, it's in baptism that sins are removed, and it's not by the operation of yourself, and it's not by the operation of man, but it's the operation of God in removing the sins and destroying the old man of sin and creating something brand new. And through that process, we come in contact with the blood. Revelation 1 and verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Tonight, it's not that water that's in that baptistry that will save you. What will save you is the only thing that's powerful enough to forgive sins. And the only thing powerful enough to forgive sins is the blood of Jesus. And you think back to that cross. And you think back to the beating that Jesus had taken. You think back to the humiliation that He went through. You think back to soldiers stretching his arms across that piece of wood and nailing him to that cross and putting his feet together and putting a nail through both of his feet and him hanging there, a bloody mess. And he looks down and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus wants to forgive you. Jesus wants to reconcile you to God. Jesus wants to wash and cleanse you tonight. But Jesus can't do that without your faith and your willingness to obey Him. 
What a shame to see that Savior hanging there and for us to not take full advantage of what He's offering to us. Tonight, you need to be born again of the water and the Spirit. See, the water is the watery grave of baptism. And the Spirit is the answer of a good conscience toward God that allows His Spirit to come into you, to remove that sinful flesh, and to ultimately create something new that He can identify as His child. You know, ultimately, that's what He told Nicodemus. In John chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He said, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. A wonderful thing takes place when someone submits to the Lord in baptism. Sins are removed. A new creature is created, and a rebirth takes place. And it's a spiritual rebirth performed by God. Do you need that kind of forgiveness tonight? Do you need to take part in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, obeying the gospel, being born again of the water and the Spirit? We urge you to do that. If you know who Jesus is, you know the gospel. You believe with all your heart that He was the Son of God and He died for your sins and you can be saved through His blood by obeying. What's hindering you from doing that? Because whatever it is, you need to get it out of your way and you need to come to Jesus tonight. We're going to sing an invitation song and if during this song you feel compelled and you have a spiritual need... We would like nothing more this evening than for you to be born into the kingdom of God. Tonight, Jesus would like nothing more than to add children to his kingdom. And Jesus can add you tonight if you come to him. Won't you come while we stand and sing?